This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and there's a lot to talk about, as always. As you heard in Bob's news, we have a court challenge to the law mandating hospitals to charge patients who won't go to nursing homes uh, they don't necessarily want to go to $400 a day. And we've got the impending retirement of nearly 20% of family doctors within the next five years, something that should not be news, but I guess it is. And last week at this time, we were talking about Kieran Moore, the chief medical officer of health for the province, and whether he should have issued a mask mandate instead of a strong recommendation. Well, we're talking about him again. Not in a good way. Uh, Just days after issuing that very strong recommendation, he was partying maskless in very close quarters <laughs> with young rappers, no less. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. Hey, guys. Hi, Libby. Good morning. Okay. (laughs) Let us begin with Bill. So uh, what do you think of uh, our party-hardy chief medical officer of health? Well, it just underlines the fact that uh, the message we've been getting, the public's been getting, has been really confusing right since the beginning of, of COVID. And uh, uh, Dr. Moore is, is just uh, re-repeating that kind of uh, uh, confusion. Uh, I, I deal with uh, politicians and public figures all the time who often, even in a meeting where uh, were distanced if a picture has been taken afterwards they put on their mask because they understand what can happen if these if these photos go public obviously uh dr moore didn't think ahead enough of this and it's a a very sad indication that uh, we're not being clear on the message we're trying to get to the public that uh, in many cases it is a good idea to wear a mask whether it's mandated or not well you know it's interesting, uh, and I do understand sometimes people take off their masks to take a picture. I do that, too. And it, at that same party, John Tory was there, and he said, hey, I took off my mask to take. And he was like, he, he, what, his thing that went kind of viral was just uh, him having a still in front of a, you know, a draping thing for the event. And he said, hey, I just took my mask off to take the picture, and I that's okay. Yeah. Kieran Moore, right, he's standing with a drink in his hand, like really in close quarters, multiple times. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking, because he could probably see that people were taking videos. And 
he didn't even bother to issue some statement like Tory bothered to respond. Like he, he didn't even say, I'm sorry, or this, or whatever the excuse was. The Ministry of Health issued something saying, you know, um, Dr. Moore, it, he assesses his risk in every situation. And it's like, you know what? If other people assess their risks in situations like that the same way, then uh, our emergency rooms are going to be in even worse shape than they are now. David? I, I, I think uh, you're right. And I think um, Bill, if anything, was being kind to Dr. Moore. And yeah, too kind, Bill. Did, in saying he didn't <laughs> think ahead. Obviously, he doesn't think he needs to wear the mask in that situation. I think everybody understands, by the way, going back to Tory, a reading left to right one standard photo of the group and you want to see their faces and then they put their masks on. Everybody understands that. But when you see him in action, as it were... Dancing, I think. And and then it really means that he himself doesn't think the mask is necessary. So it's masks for thee, but not for me. You know, and it's... it's, The reason why... A, there's so much confusion, but B, there's so much distrust of these pronouncements from these authorities that say one thing and do another. Peter. Well, you know, um, it it must be difficult for public figures to maintain the mask rule all the time. You know, like it just like he's holding a drink, too. So I'm going to I'm going to. Give him a tiny benefit of the doubt. Wait there. a minute, that was in one of the video pictures okay. I saw, but well, it wasn't saw, in another one. The the um, the other thing is there, there isn't a mask mandate. It, it, he did say it was recommended, but it's not a mandate. So um, until we have a mandate, you know, um, the, the recommendation is useless, right? And and his actions just show how useless the recommendation is, <laughs> uh, you know, rather than a mandate. And and there isn't a political will for a mandate right now. So. It just sort of it, it just sort of highlights the ridiculousness of this of this uh, this whole masking thing, you know. And uh, you know, it, it shows people don't take it serious. Some people don't take it seriously. Some people, including in the people don't, issuing, yeah, it. including. So, so again, it's it's more uh, sort of uh, you know ridiculousness about this whole thing. And these gotcha moments just make everyone crazy. They don't really help anyone. And, uh, you know, either make a mandate, everyone wears a mask, or no mandate, and people can choose to wear a mask. That, that, that's what we have to have. We can't have any of this strongly recommended or, you know, otherwise it's, it, you're just going to find loopholes and hypocrisies all the time. Well, uh, I think he's lost a lot of credibility. I mean, I think, okay, recommendation, he's not the only uh, chief medical officer for a province that's said that. Uh, obviously, political considerations, but uh, I mean, you know. But, but even if it's a recommendation and not a mandate, yeah. follow your own recommendation. Exactly. <laughs> and and why would anybody listen to you after that? Exactly. Exactly right. Okay. Let's and and it looks like zero consequence for him. He didn't even have to face the music himself. <laughs> he he uh, had a flack do it for him. I mean. Uh, yep. Talk about weaseling out. Okay, um, moving right along, uh, this charter challenge to Bill 7. I, I also, I, I love the names they give these bills. They're, they're so kind of Orwellian. Uh, isn't this like... Uh, 
better better health care for everybody or whatever. But anyway, uh, more so beds, this, better care, more beds, better, better beds, more, more beds, beds, better, better care. care. Everything is better under this government. Uh, so uh, this charter challenge was launched. Uh, David, you have a lot to say about it. Well, I think that, and I'm not a lawyer, but the problem is that the language in the bill itself directly contradicts the premise of this challenge. And the bill specifically says they may research without your consent. They may check around and see if there are other nursing homes that could take you without your consent. But they must eventually put it to you as the patient and or patient and family. And you don't have to consent. And they are specifically forbidden in, the, in writing from coercing you or using force to move you, they cannot make you go where you don't want to go. So the but they can charge you four hundred bucks a day. The charge of four hundred dollars a day, the way it's positioned here, is in the regulations is the cost that the hospital uh, incurs in keeping you in the, that bed. And I think that if we're going to discuss this. Thoroughly, we got to recognize that the CMA, in a, in a report a couple of years ago, said that there's, look, there's 21,000 acute care beds. There's 3,900 average daily people waiting to get out, and the majority are seniors. So let's say it's 3,000 seniors a day who are in long, who are in acute care beds who are waiting for long-term care. If we move them from those beds, according to a CMA report of a few years ago, that would free up $2.3 billion a year for the health care system. So they're in a, in a place they shouldn't be that's medically dangerous, uh, an acute care hospital. They're waiting for a long-term care bed. Um, they don't want to move. The law, they can't be moved more than 75 kilometers in southern Ontario, more than 150 in northern Ontario, with their consent. So that's an awful lot of um, trying your best to accommodate these things. And it's presented as uh, a fine for not moving. It's presented as being forced to move. If they are going to be coerced, and I think, Libby, it's reasonable to say, yeah, I don't care what it says in the bill, but in real life they are going to coerce them. That's when, yeah. you'd bring the, that's when you bring the lawsuit. I think doing it anticipatory like this is a very uh, Hail Mary pass, frankly. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, but doesn't, um, Bill, the $400 a day uh, violate their right to equal health care for all uh, at no charge or something like that? Well, the, the you know, the bottom line is that uh, if patients don't require hospital care, then they've got to be moved uh, Elsewhere, we can't take up those beds that are needed by people who don't uh, need them. So the question is uh, not whether or not they should be uh, forced to move out of the, the hospital, as any of us are when we're, uh, when, when we're cured. They say it's time to go home or wherever. If they can't go home and they have to be in long-term care, setting of some kind, then maybe this, you know, maybe there's an alternate solution. This is so, being being proposed is so black and white, and it really isn't. What about a solution that limits the stay uh, in, in whatever long-term care facility they're put in until they can get into one closer to, to home or to where they want to be and prior yeah, prioritize limits till their funeral, those people? Right? 
<laughs> Sorry? <laughs> said limits till their funeral. Um, Peter, prioritize them to 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 move on that uh, on that waiting list, and that gets them out of the hospital and into where they want to be as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's not happening. Uh, Peter, what do you think of this court challenge? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of with David here. Like, there, there doesn't seem to be enough to challenge yet, but um, just wait until they start actually, you know, they, they start actually charging people and, and the, uh, you know, the media get hold of that. But um, I, it, it seems like a situation um, that the bill, uh, you, you know, all, all this sort of action going on behind your back seems a little bit sort of uh, strange that the government can do all this, you know, access your... You know, talk to a nursing home, set up a bed there, uh, plan plan for you to get transferred there. You know, it just seems a little bit weird that all this is is being done um, behind your back. You know, and and not in consultation with you or your your decision maker. And I, I think that's the danger of the bill. But whether whether uh, that's what they're going to challenge or not, or, or whether it'll just be the the four hundred dollars or or you know, the coercion element of it. Um, you know, I, I have no idea. But uh, you know, right now, I agree with David. It's, it's not, they're not going to win a challenge based on, on this, the wording in the bill. You know, uh, it's interesting. You're, you're talking about all this uh, stuff being done, you know, quote, behind their backs. I, I think, a, a, you know, a big part of the issue is that there is no one to help these people navigate and figure out what is what and where is where. So from that point of view, if, and I don't know how uh, short-staffed and time-crunched people are gonna f- go- going to uh, fill this, I'm saying if their social work staff actually get to work looking for places for these people, that might actually be a good thing, David. Well, I think you're right. And let's just look at one other thing. For me to be on the waiting, for me to be in the hospital and not be able to be admitted to a long-term care home means that I'm on a waiting list. For me to be on a waiting list means I've already filed five choices of long-term care homes that I'm willing to move into, and none of them had a vacancy. Here I am in the hospital, and i got to wait. So now they add a sixth home and a seventh home, and they're obviously in real life going to look close to home if they can. They don't have any vested interest in having a newspaper headline of moving me from Willowdale to New Liskard if they don't need to. So they're looking around, hey, would number six on your original thing, you dropped, you didn't pick number six, but they got a place. How about that? I think in real life, it's going to be handled in a, in a collaborative way because that's what makes the most sense. Um, but, why, but number six will be the will be will have beds because it's a terrible home. Maybe, that maybe okay, yeah, maybe. But maybe it's no longer a terrible home. But maybe yeah. it'll be number seven or number eight. But the fact is, that's that, very optimistic. Maybe it's okay. no longer a terrible right, okay. home. But but the fact that they're going to phone around, yeah, if they are, they, if they are, they have to because they can't come to me with a recommendation in the first place under this bill. Now they're that's not going to happen very quickly either because no, you no, know no. I I don't think that uh, either you know th- th- it sounds like a 
big extra pile of work on people who are probably full up already. But they can't charge me the 400 bucks till I've turned down their proposed yeah. transfer. So they phone around. I don't see anything that sinister, by the way, in phoning around saying, have you got a spot for this guy? No, I don't see anything. I don't know why uh, that's such a terrible thing to I do. I don't see anything sinister in that. And in terms of the $400 they can't charge... I, I don't think a lot of them are keen to to charge some elderly. No. no. Yeah, because they, they have other sources of money, and, the, you know, that's also a, a potentially very unflattering kind of a headline. Exactly. They are now required to charge. So I don't know that any of this is going to happen much quicker than it already happens. And as we'll far see. as your, cha- your challenge to the Charter about right to life and, and liberty and all that stuff, and uh, the Supreme Court of British Columbia ruled that they don't have to provide you with health care ever. You know, if, if, you're, if, if you, you can't go private to say, to, for the benefit of your own health, they go, oh, well, you have to wait, so you have to wait. This, they could argue that we're still giving you free treatment. It's just in another facility. You don't want to go there. So... That's a complicated legal issue, too. So I think that until there are events that have occurred, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, abuses that have taken place, I think it's going to be hard Bet to challenge on it. this. It's going to be hard to do this, though, on, on a hypothetical. I think they're going to need some actual cases. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, I'll be talking to Natalie Mara later in the show. And then uh, the kicker on this is that they apparently uh, the Ontario Health Coalition has to raise money to to actually do this challenge. So, we'll yeah, see. we'll see if <laughs> if it goes anywhere. Uh, but in the meantime, it's uh, one way of tweaking our memories and oh, making yeah. people aware that, oh, this is, this is happening. Uh, a couple of other things on the medical front. So, and another thing that we'll be dealing with right after this segment, and that's this study that nearly 20% of doctors are planning on retiring in the next five years. Uh, this should not be news. We've known about this for uh, a long time. Just if you look around, uh, there are a lot of baby boomer doctors who maybe, or they either want to retire or maybe they want to cut back. And there's also this, uh, I would say, uh, growing number and possibly epidemic of doctors who don't want to see their patients in person. And I don't think those are the older doctors. I think those are the younger ones. Uh, so uh, what are you finding, David? Well, I think that the we're starting to hear uh, new ideas about how to deal with this. You're quite right. They've seen this coming. They, they cut back on medical school admissions as far back as the Bob Ray era in Ontario, and that... Uh, uh, rock has worked its way through the snake and is now at the tail end, and there's this big, glaring, big, ugly problem. And uh, they're talking about international credentialing, making it easier for uh, foreign students to get a, a credential. But for the first time, we're hearing, certainly from some of our members, and I think even from the CMA, why do we need 11 colleges of physicians and surgeons? Why can't we have a national registry of all doctors so you can see people across provincial borders and use telehealth 
and virtual care, which is now morphing into a whole... Oh, you're getting into provincial jurisdiction, David. Don't go there. Well, I'm going to go there because the provinces may be very happy to solve this problem. Say, look, if you can get onto a telehealth call, what difference does it make if your doctor's in Winnipeg or in Toronto? Why should he not be able to treat you because he's not a member of the Ontario College? It's a, it, it may be. I'm just talking about new topics that are coming to the surface. They may or may not survive. But we have to rethink this. We can't have 10 provinces each fighting to increase its geographically local supply because that's not going to get there fast enough, frankly. There's no chance of that working. Well, right. Now, there, speaking of telehealth, um, I uh, am a big fan if, if for when it's appropriate, of course, obviously. Of course. But there are a lot of doctors, and I'm very fortunate. I have doctors who are happy to email me or call yeah. me if they need to. But uh, a lot of people don't want to do it. And I think a big issue is compensation. And on the other side of it, there are doctors who don't want to see you in person because maybe it takes too much time. I, I have this story about a specialist that I saw, and I think that she just kind of it was on the phone an appointment made three months in advance it was clear that she had not even had a cursory glance at my chart before i had to lead her to useful information and she probably stacks these and i bet that um, at the heart of that is perhaps a money thing uh am i being harsh there Bill? No, you're not. I think I think you're dead, uh, dead on uh, the uh, the issue, and uh, it's. Uh, but it's not necessarily the physicians um, wanting to have uh, more more money. It's a case of, of governments not being willing to renegotiate and understand this new world we're we're living in, and and, and old fashioned. Uh, regulations uh, up against the kind of uh, new approaches that David was outlining, and it's got it's got to happen. They've got to come together, right? But at a certain point, maybe it is. <laughs> it yeah. is a, a a matter of money. Peter, what's your view of this? Well, you, you know, like you, Libby, I, I've had uh, my suspicions about the the uh, speed at which they they hold these um, you know these uh, telehealth. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I phoned a, s- a specialist, and honestly, it was under a minute, and we were done, you know. Uh-huh. And um, certainly, like, maybe maybe when I visited the specialist, you know, you'd have to you'd make small talk, and you'd do this and that and whatever. But so, so I'm happy I didn't have to go to the office, and I didn't um, have to wait a long time for him, you know, him to see me, but... Um, I was a little bit puzzled by the speed at which he conducted the meeting. So I, I just don't know whether they, whether they're they're sort of making up for the money they lost during COVID or by banking everything, or whether um, this is a good use of time. You know, I, I just need one question answered, answered, boom, I'm gone, on to the next one. You know, maybe that'll help reduce the, the wait times So um, for family doctors. So... Um, but but I think an important element here is um, you know we need more nurse practitioners. I, I, I think uh, I think that would take a huge stress off the uh, primary care situation and just a lot of cases that don't need a doctor could go be funneled to the um, nurse practitioner. It would save money and it would save uh, resources. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 
And, and by the way, that specialist that I was talking about, it wasn't quick. Oh, yours wasn't I, quick. Oh, no. It, she was on the phone with me for an hour. Whoa. I wanted to charge her for my time. <laughs> and rightly so. What? Rightly so. Rightly so. And afterwards, uh, there was a whole raft of new rules about how to see this doctor again. I mean, I thought, oh, like, don't make eye contact. Is she some kind of celebrity? <laughs> I, I mean, it's just like, ah. But I, I just know? want to make one point, though. Telehealth isn't an either-or thing. It's yeah. happening anyway. And there are, what are the, what's disappointing to me is there are very robust models that are emerging, even in a free enterprise market like the U.S. where they've got doctor retirement issues and they've got shortages yeah. of healthcare workers. They're moving to a hybrid model that's happening anyway where the nurse practitioner might be your first call, where there are patient portals where you can log in without an appointment and for with one specific question and get yeah. an answer, where there are virtual We have visits. those. We have those. But it's not all integrated into the same system. So what's emerging is a hybrid model that is borderless or with less borders and less barriers. That is occurring at warp speed anyway in several other jurisdictions and we're behind the curve and I'm just observing what's going on out there. I'm not making a ideological or philosophical case. This is coming. It can save the day properly done and the powers that be appear to have little or no interest in it or even awareness of it. And again, with the, um, you know, barriers, right? So interesting, when I did see my GP, he repeated some tests that were done uh, in a hospital, you know, about a week before, partly because he, I said, well, isn't it all on, you know, my health records or whatever? And he said, you know, oh, I have to know every patient's password. <laughs> I can't deal with it. So I think we still have... Uh, growing pains. But yeah, I mean, again, uh, either there are lots of doctors who won't see you in person, and yep. there are lots of doctors who won't uh, answer your question or, or email in a timely way so that you can combine those things. It's, you know, it's coming, though. It's coming. Hopefully it's coming. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Dave in Thunder Bay. Hi, Dave. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Lavity, I'm amateur radio operator, and I was talking to some friends on radio, and uh, I says, where's such and such? And he says, oh, he's in the hospital. Guess what? He has to pay $10,000 a month because he has Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah, that uh, in the States. That doesn't in surprise me. Yep. Doesn't $10, surprise me. $10,000 out of his pocket. Yep. There you Just go. I thought I'd mention it to you. Okay, <laughs> thanks. So we don't have to pay $10,000 a day. Well, unless you're in certain retirement homes. <laughs> so that's $10,000 a month. Anyway, I'm looking at the time. It's time to wrap things up, beginning with Bill. We've got a lot of problems uh, ahead of us that have to be sorted, uh, have to be sort, sorted out around our uh, health care. And unless we move on them quickly, uh, we're going to be in worse shape a year from now and talking about the same things. Peter. Yeah, and, and part of moving on it quickly means the feds and provinces have to get together and come up with a funding model that works, and they have to do it soon. David. 
I think that in addition to the funding model, they have to come up with a resolve to rebuild the whole thing. I think I was very disappointed that they met and they pointed fingers again. If only we had more dollars, everything would be fine. No one. And uh, that's not true. And until you get some revolutionary thinking in there, uh, Bill's right. We're going to be, this is going to be Groundhog Day. Uh, Many times. Okay, and we'll be here talking about it. Sure Thank you so much, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thank you, Thanks, Libby. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Libby. Okay, we are taking a break, and when we come back, so what about those 20% of family docs who are retiring? I mean, we already have nearly 2 million Ontarians who don't have a family doctor. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As if there weren't already enough problems in our health system. There are already 1.8 million people in Ontario who don't have a family doctor. But a recently published survey finds that nearly 20% plan to close their practices within the next five years. 4% plan to close within the year. Nearly um, and an increasing number still won't see patients in person last week. The health minister called on physicians to do just that. Sorry. Now let's go to Dr. Sohail Gandhi, a family physician and past president of the Ontario Medical Association, as well as Dr. Elisa Naiman, a family physician with the Medical Station Clinic. I apologize for my frog. Hello. And um, what do you make of this, Dr. Gandhi? Well, thanks very much. Um, I'm not surprised by the numbers, given what I'm seeing uh, amongst my own colleagues. Uh, I am going to, however, call out one comment that we really need to put a stop to simply because it's utterly and completely false. And that's the statement that family physicians are not seeing people in person. Uh, you know, I was with the Ontario Medical Association. I was privy to confidential OHIP billing data. I can tell you right now, 97% of all family physicians see people in a mix of virtual and in person. Two and a half percent of family physicians retired over COVID, so that explains the other two. So we're talking about less than half a percent of all family physicians. So let's put an end to this total misrepresentation and complete fraudulent claim that family physicians don't see patients in person uh, as a general rule. Okay, it's a very small number. With respect to um, why people are getting tired and are considering retiring, I think what we're seeing is a culmination of decades of mismanagement of the healthcare system. I mean, it's fashionable to, bl uh, to blame COVID, but uh, I've been on your show for a number of years now, and, and you know, I was expressing concern about family medicine five, six, seven years ago. Dr. Nadia Alam has been on your show a number of times. I know you know her quite well. She's been saying the same thing for seven or eight years. Dr. Kimala Premji has been saying this for 10 years. So uh, people have been saying that there's a crisis coming for a number of years. They were ignored. And then COVID came and just exacerbated the crisis. And that's, that's unfortunately what we're dealing with right now. 
I certainly agree with you with that last point, Dr. Alisa Naiman. Also, I just, uh, you know, you're saying it's not true. And just anecdotally, I know a lot of people who tell me that their doctors will not see them in person. Uh, Dr. Naiman, what's your view of those things? Um, well, I can tell you that in our office that uh, we encourage all patients to come for in-person appointments. And we actually have a problem when people want to have a virtual appointment when that doesn't meet the standard of care and a physical exam is required and people just don't want to come in. So we're having a problem of not being able to have people come in. Um, I agree with um, the statement about that it's inflammatory about what the Minister of Health said last week. She basically places the blame for what's happening with the excess weight in the in emerge on family family doctors. And I can tell you that here in our office, we are seeing a ton of kids that are sick. We are seeing adults who are sick. Uh, we're doing our best to try to make sure that people don't go to the hospital. And family medicine is in crisis. And to have these inflammatory remarks by the Minister of Health was very, very upsetting. Okay, so it was upsetting. Now, what is, are there not enough uh, family doc graduates? I mean, uh, what is the impediment if you're in a practice, a kind of a group practice, to just adding more doctors, Dr. Gandhi? Yeah, so um, there aren't enough. Uh, I, I believe I wrote back in 2016 that only about 30% of, of medical school um Graduates were considering family medicine, and we need 50% as a bare minimum uh, to consider uh, family practice. And, and part of that is because family practice has changed dramatically over the past uh, 30 years. Like just looking at my past weekend, so I wasn't on call this weekend. That was supposed to be a weekend off. But I spent about an hour on Saturday going through 45 messages on my EMR and 20 lab results. And on Sunday, it was, you know, another 20 messages that came on my EMR, another 50, uh, EMR, and another um, 15 lab results. Um, and when I go on vacation, I take my laptop with me because if I don't spend an hour, hour and a half a day going through my messages, I'm going to be really slammed when I come back. Now, we're, we're fortunate in life. I'm fortunate in life. I, I freely admit that. I've got a house over, uh, you know, I've got a roof over my head. I've got food on the table. My kids are going to be able to go to school. But the blunt reality is when you tell anyone, any person, that they have to work seven days a week forever, you're going to burn people out, right? And that's that's the state of family medicine right now, where people are being forced to work um, seven days a week, and, and it's, it's weighing on a lot of people. Uh, one of the things that I keep hearing about is a kind of onerous burden of paperwork for doctors. So my question is this, can't you... Uh, uh, can't you get people for that? I mean, clerical people who who can uh, lift some of that burden, Dr. Naiman? Um, so, one, it's first hard to hire people to come into work So and to hire people who have an understanding of, a, like, a hiring a medical receptionist wouldn't be able to fill in forms. Since the pandemic, I've never seen so many forms that need to be completed. A lot of people are taking a stress leave, they need documentation, and the only person who can really fill that out is uh, is the doctor. And then there's other pieces of documentation, requests from other, from other healthcare providers to order tests. It's just, I don't see how it can be offloaded to somebody else. Um, 
and then you know we operate as a business so to hire somebody else there's an extra cost and costs have already gone up so practically from a business sense it makes no sense to do it and so from an administrative perspective it ends up being the doctor who ends up filling in most of these forms if not all Dr. Gandhi, do you do you see a solution for offloading some of that stuff? Um, I think the only solution I can think of, because I agree with with uh, my colleague, is that if there was a, a medical scribe, if there was funding for a medical scribe that would help with some of the documentation, because even if you look at some of the like paperwork isn't just forms from insurance companies or forms from other people. Paperwork is, uh, you know, what I did this weekend, where you have a lab result or a mammogram result or or a Pap smear result that comes in your inbox, and then you have to interpret it and then determine what next steps are appropriate with that test, right? So if there was a way of uh, of funding medical scribes that uh, could take direction from a physician where, you know, I could say, well, fill out, you know, call this person back in or, or let this person know X, Y, Z instead of me doing it myself, then that, that might be helpful. But I don't really see that happening for family physicians right now. Hmm. Uh, so... Uh also, in terms of the medical school issue, uh, would you say that just uh, having more people admitted to medical school, uh, you know, it's a long-term solution, but how far would that go to alleviate the shortage? Uh, are you asking me or, or my colleague? Uh, uh, we'll start with Dr. Naiman. Any increasing medical school enrollment will help, but the problem is, is that people don't want to go into family medicine, one. And if people go into family medicine, they're not graduating and going into comprehensive primary care, which is cradle-to-grave care, because as we've discussed, it's you're working seven days a week, and so the lifestyle is not what new grads want to do, and then you're not being remunerated properly for the amount of work relative to other to other specialties. So there's really no incentive to have people going into family medicine in the current situation that we have. Uh, so again, Dr. Gandhi, how do you uh, how do you change that? Yeah, so we need to do uh, a complete rethink of how family medicine uh, serves as the foundation and the bedrock of our healthcare system, right? Uh, we need to totally transform how family medicine works and, and how family medicine functions in appropriate teams where, where the family physician is the lead and can direct care to, um, to allied healthcare providers for care that's appropriate because I think that's, that's really the only solution. Um, that requires a certain amount of vision. It requires boldness. It requires um, some inspiration. Uh, and quite frankly, it requires a little bit of chutzpah on, on the part who, of people who are doing it. And I, I don't see our healthcare bureaucrats because it really is the healthcare bureaucrats who have made these decisions over the past years. Um, I don't see anyone in there that, that has that kind of, of, of chutzpah, frankly, to pull this off. But it is possible. It is possible. Uh, so uh, what's the bottom line on this, Dr. Naiman? Uh, the bottom line is is that uh, the situation for for family medicine will be getting worse as more doctors retire and the older doctors work longer hours than the newer doctors, and people better hold on to their family doctor that they have and better hope that their family doctor doesn't retire or switch uh, their 
practice type because it will be very difficult to find another family physician. Okay, and Dr. Gandhi, what would you like to leave us with? So uh, I would um, like to... I would like to simply state that I think that the solutions are possible. Um, I think they're possible uh, with vision. I would simply ask politicians of all stripes. I don't care which party you're with. I don't care what level of government you're with. Uh, I would simply uh, like to ask them to stop listening to the healthcare bureaucrats who've made these decisions over the past 20 years and made historically bad decisions that got us into this place. Albert Einstein said, you know, the the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Well, we're at that stage. So please listen to some of the visionaries like Dr. Alam or Dr. Kimala Premji or or one of these people who, who really knows what's going on. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Elisa Naiman and Dr. Sohail Gandhi. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye you. now. Okay, we are taking another break. And when we come back, we will delve into that charter challenge against Bill 7 uh, that we were just chatting about earlier. We'll be talking to the head of the Ontario Health Co- uh, Coalition on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we discussed earlier, the Ontario Health Coalition is launching a charter challenge against Bill 7, and that is the law that allows hospitals to send alternate level of care patients to nursing homes that they don't necessarily want to go to. And uh, the law also mandates $400 a day charges if they refuse. Now, the organization is calling it an unprecedented and egregious deprivation of seniors' rights and liberties. Uh, so, people, what do you think? Do you agree? 416-360-0740, toll-free 40, and now I'm joined by Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Nice to talk with you. I'm sorry it's not on a happier topic. Okay. Well, so what are the grounds for this charter challenge you're launching? Well, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects um, Section 7, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Um, and so we're saying that this law um, abrogates those rights um, for the frail elderly who will be forced out of hospital into these homes that may be far away from their families um, and loved ones that are homes not of their choosing where, you know, they have poor reputations and for inadequate care and so on. Um, and then Section 15, which is the... Um, the, the equality rights section, the, the section that says that you have the right not to be discriminated against based on things like age. Uh, and we're saying this is ageist. They are the only people being targeted. The frail elderly in hospitals waiting for long-term care are the only patient group being targeted to have their right to consent uh, wiped out um, and to be forced into places not of their choosing, um, violating their right to informed consent. Uh, we were actually just talking about this with our Zoomer squad, and um, uh, one of our panelists was reading the language in the, the legislation, and what it says is that 
hospital staff can research what homes are available without the consent of the patient, but the legislation says that they cannot force people there. Uh, so what 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 they were wondering is, uh, given that that's what the legislation says, is, is there any chance that a challenge could be successful before there's some kind of instances of abuse? Yeah, what the what the legislation actually says is that um, the patient can um, be assessed without their consent. They can have their um, personal health information shared with an array of providers without their consent. They can, sorry, have their paperwork filled in without their consent and be admitted to a long-term care home, not of their choosing, without their, without their consent. So um, that is absolutely clear in the legislation. Our, our co-applicants with us in the Charter Challenge is the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, a legal clinic staffed with lawyers. We have assessed this. Our Lawyers have assessed this. That is what the legislation says. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, how are you going to proceed with this? Uh, it, does it, uh, I mean, uh, where where does the challenge begin? What, what, okay. what are the phases? Yeah, so we'll file with the um, Ontario Superior Court of Justice. Um, then it'll be her, then the government will you know, put in their paperwork and um, there will be a case conference, we understand, that will um, set the timeline. We're hoping, you know, to push this as quickly as possible because there's no recourse for people. In the legislation, there's no right to appeal or anything. So people in this situation are going to be forced out into all kinds of places that they don't want to go to. Um, so we want it to move forward as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, we'll, you know, we're going to fundraise as we go along and make sure that we try and fund. I mean, we have to pay for this as well. So we are going ahead. But, uh, you know, all of that has to happen at the same time. And we're going to hope that it will be heard within the year. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Sharon in Aurelia. Hi, Sharon. Hi. I was just calling to say I'm not concerned. I'm not involved with the uh, bill seven yet, but I'm involved with a co-payment. My husband has been in the hospital since July. He's still in the hospital. He's had both of his legs removed at the knee, oh, no. and he has bed sores that are being attended to. The hospital is doing a good job, but the billing department wants to charge us fifty four dollars and eighty nine cents a day, which comes to one thousand. $647.70 for November, $1,701.59 for any month that has 31 Sorry. days in it, and the nursing homes here are full. Uh, just So they, they want to charge you that amount because Based he on should... net income. But is it, what's the reason? Because he, he, is he considered? They need him out of the hospital, but okay. he can't come home because the house is too small. He has no legs. And um, they're just trying to uh, force, well, get people out so they can have the beds for acute patients. Um, and they want to build a new hospital. I, want, I was just wondering why they'd want to build a new hospital if they don't want anybody in the hospitals. Why don't they build an, a bit more nursing homes that are available? Aurelia's full of senior citizens, and we're on a pension, and that's it, pension, no work. 
Um, Sharon, I can't afford this. I mean, and well, uh, at least it's fifty-four bucks a day, not four hundred bucks a day. Yeah, Natalie, that's not Bill Seven that I'm in. Yeah, but it's this co-payment thing that yeah. just came up last week. I can barely eat. Oh, Sharon, so sorry to hear that. We may be able to help a, a bit with this. So, what's going on? I'll just explain. Yep. Since nineteen ninety six, when the Harris government brought in a law, they are allowed to charge a co-payment for chronic care hospital bed for okay. people who need long-term care but hospital level care yes. they're called chronic right. care beds and that's what your husband is in and they're, what they're charging you is the co-payment rate it's the same as a long-term care home rate would be it's that that's the rate is regulated by government it's kind of different than bill seven but it's similar right and yes. um uh, and so they're, that, that's why you're saying based on his income, they have assessed you that. But if you're being left with n- nowhere near enough money per month to survive, yes. um, maybe we could talk after the show. And let me see if there's something we can figure out there. Okay. okay. Uh, Sharon, uh, uh, if you can leave your info uh, with our producer, Zeev, and okay. we'll get it to Natalie, okay? Okay, thank you. Thanks. Well, uh, Natalie, I mean, in, in terms of uh, uh, Sharon's issue, uh, but if he went into long-term care, you'd still have to pay. Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't sound like if the hospital was trying to move him out to a long-term care home, that would be because they've assessed him as needing long-term care. Since they're not, since they're keeping him in a hospital but charging the chronic care rate, it sounds to me like his care level, his care needs are too high for a long-term care home. And, um, you know, he's he's going to be in a hospital for the long term under the chronic care bed rate, hmm. if you wow. understand what I mean. So there's a difference, like chronic care or what they call complex continuing care now is a hospital level of care. And um, long-term care is, you know, a different level of care. I mean, it does not require the same um, intrusive medical technology or, you know, the same level of staffing and so on, uh, supposedly, for the person to live. And so, I mean, it is all kind of arbitrary. There is no, like we've we've talked about this before, there's no kind of ceiling on, you know, who they can put into a long-term care home. And there's lots of complaints about people being put into complex, especially people with mental health issues um, and behavioral issues of, of violence and so on, too complex for the homes to take. So it is kind of a gray line, but um, but nonetheless, there is a difference there. And Bill 7 refers to people who are um, assessed as needing long-term care, so ready to be discharged from hospital. All the long-term care homes are full. Um, and uh, and they're trying to push the person out to a home that's further afield or one that does not have a long wait list because no one you know people no one wants to go there. It's got terrible care. Have you heard? Well, I mean the the fine just came into effect yesterday, but have you uh, heard of cases of people being moved to a place they really don't want to go to? Yeah, you know what we have, and like. We had this before this bill was brought in, but before this bill was brought in, then, you know, I could call the hospital or or someone from the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and we could say, you can't do this, and we challenged them, and then, you know, the problem would disappear. They would, they would back off. Now, with this legislation, 
um, they're going to require people. It says in, in the in the regulations and in uh, yeah in the regulations that the hospitals are required to charge four hundred dollars a day. That takes away any discretion, and it sort of gives the hospital an excuse to you know if there's a lot of pressure from a family or what have you. Um, and uh, so we, I mean, we have heard of it. We heard before the bill even passed from people who said that they were using the bill, the four hundred dollars a day, as a threat. Um, to uh, push people out, and most people acquiesce because, of course, they can't afford the four hundred dollars a day, and so they acquiesce and they go. They don't really have recourse. Okay, anything you want to leave us with, Natalie? Just that this is really like these are, as you know, you know, these are elderly people in the last months of their lives, and they're human beings, and in our view, they're right to care, like their lives are valuable. They don't have less right to care than other people. And so on principle, we have to challenge this. Hmm. And uh, you're talking about fundraising. Do you have any idea how much you need to raise? Yeah, you know, it looks like it's going to cost something towards a half a million dollars. So we're trying to find 500 people who can give us $1,000 each or 1,000 people who can give $500 each or any portion of that. Uh, you know, and we'll just, I mean, regardless, I'll make it work. I'll figure out how to do it, but uh, we, we're we're going to go ahead. Okay. Natalie Mara from the Ontario Health Coalition, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.